As we implement these NIL changes, our student athletes must remain students and not become employees of colleges and universities. And last, student athletes are not university employees. Their first priority is to be students working towards a college degree. Any legislation must also guarantee that student athletes are still considered students, not employees of an institution. Using NIL to create an employment framework would destroy college sports as we know it. College sports is not a vocation and the participants are not employees. But without proper guardrails and structure, some NIL proposals threaten to undermine the core values of college sports by allowing payments for NIL to serve as pay for play and potentially turning college athletes into employees. First and most importantly, we must recognize that we are dealing with students who are and should remain students and not employees. We cannot allow college athletics to devolve into a pay-for-play system that exists only as a training ground for a handful of future professionals and infringes on the integrity of the recruitment process. The main benefit these students take away is their educational degree. It's not about coming here to earn money and to be an employee. If you elect to be a student athlete, your earnings should benefit all student athletes at your institutions. If you want to keep the money and be someone's employees, then go join a professional team. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And I have a blog that uh, I guess I started writing in almost three years ago now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And the blog brings us up to uh, March of 2021, just before the Austin oral argument. Then I switched over to the podcast format. All right. Today is February 14th, 2022. And if you think I've got a bouquet of roses and a box of candy for the Power Five and the NCAA, you will be disappointed. In this episode, we're going to be transitioning from the past into what's happening now and what may be happening in the future. And in the last episode, I talked about the similarities between that period 2013-2014 and what has happened in 2021 and 2022. And when I I did a kind of a item by item, talking point by talking point comparison between the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014, and what's happened with this constitution committee in 2021-22, one of those items was the external regulatory threats that existed in both scenarios. And I focused more on the 2013-2014. They are similar, but what's happening right now seems more chaotic because there are more moving parts. There are more types of external threats that are on the table right now. And I think because of the Austin decision, at least at the symbolic level and the message that it sent, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are having to really think a little bit harder about their strategies and their messaging. And I've talked quite a bit about that. And one of the things I really wanted to establish before I got to this point, and I did that in these last few episodes, was to really drill down on how the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries think about their role in big-time college sports. And when you look at it honestly and historically, it has been my way or the highway. The institutional interests always trump the athlete's interest. And when I look at where things sit right now in February of 2022, the battle lines between the two groups of stakeholders, basically the in-system institutional stakeholders, the Power Five, the NCAA, and all of their surrounding corporate interests on the one hand, and then the athlete's interests on the other hand, those lines are still in place, and I don't see a lot of movement here. These discussions have just been so polarizing, and you're either 100% with us or you're 100% against us, and that's true with both groups of stakeholders. And I want to talk a little bit about that in this episode to set up a framework for thinking about how these issues may be resolved going forward, because so much of the angst that exists in discussions around these issues comes from the uncertainty that's a product of basically handing over your destiny to external regulators. The NCAA did that explicitly in 2019 when it laid the foundation for going to Congress 
They went to Congress. Congress didn't come to them. In that first hearing in a subcommittee of commerce on February 11th of 2020 that was loaded with NCAA witnesses, including Mark Emmert and Bob Bowlesby and Anthony Gonzalez. And it was just an all-star team of NCAA Power 5 interests and NCAA Power 5 talking points. But they went to Congress and said, we need your help. And the fact that the institutions that have been in charge of the regulation of college sports going back over a century have found themselves in a position where they are begging external regulators to bail them out is the product of their inability to self-regulate and their selfishness and their greed. They simply can't contain themselves. It's happening right now with this name, image, and likeness market and the transfer market. And at the organizational level, at least... The in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have some coordination in how they're going to respond to these external regulatory threats, even those that they created themselves. And they have lobbyists and lawyers, and they have a well-oiled machine, and I've talked all about that, and that's a huge advantage for them. And then on the flip side of that coin, when you look at this through the lens of athletes' interests and their relationship to external regulators, they've really had no choice but to go to external regulators and the powers that those uh, regulators have because the institutional interests that are supposed to be acting in the best interest of the athletes have refused to do so. And also because the athletes really don't have an organized message. The athletes' rights movement right now is very disorganized. And you've now got a lot of people trying to get into that space. And it's an alphabet soup of uh, organizations that are acting on behalf of athletes' rights, but it's not clear the extent to which they are reading from the same page. And again, they don't have the benefit of these national law firms and and high-powered D.C. lobbying firms to try to coordinate the message. So you have the athletes' rights movement moving in different external regulatory pathways without a sense of where this all ought to land and a clear agenda, a, a clear pathway to a resolution of the conflict between these two all-or-nothing approaches. So what I want to do is just right now identify the external regulatory actors out there and briefly where things stand right now, and then to look in a little more detail at some of the labor law issues that are out there, because that's going to be the big issue of 2022. And you have activity in Congress, you have activity in federal courts, you have activity at the executive agency level, at the federal level, and you have the state's interests as well. And there are more pathways on the table right now than there have ever been. But the basic approach between the the two stakeholder groups, institutional stakeholders and then the athlete stakeholders, has really been built around this line in the sand. And the NCAA has propagandized the student-athlete and the athletes-can't-be-employee issue probably more than any other component of their regulatory model because that brings in amateurism. It is predicated upon this fundamental belief that athletes can't be paid by their university. And from the institutional stakeholder standpoint, this no-employee line is one that they are going to defend to the death. That is the hill that they are willing to fight and die on. And that has been the case really going back to Walter Byer's conceptualization of the student-athlete in the 1950s to beat back the threat of workers' compensation liability. So I want to talk just broadly about the general categories of external regulatory threats, and then we'll drill down a little bit on what's happening on this athletes as employees movement in the labor market. So when I was doing my episodes on the Constitution Committee and the work of this NCAA Division I Transformation Committee, I wanted to uh, bring us to a point and have enough foundational work done to look at some of these basic components of the uh, regulatory model and the business model and the role and influence of external regulators. And I've been largely thinking about those issues categorically through the lens of congressional action, through federal litigation, through federal agency action, and through state regulation. And those issues are all live issues now. And the Transformation Committee is going to have to decide how it's going to address those external regulatory threats. And they've set a 
deadline of August of 2022. Who knows if that's a hard deadline that could move as well. But they're ha going to have to look at the fundamental premises underlying the current amateurism-based business model, and that model still largely intact. So what is the state of amateurism? I want to get to that. And we're going to use this, this house litigation out in California as a way to, to analyze that. And what challenges to the amateurism-based model will look like post-Austin? And so that's one important item that I think the Transformation Committee is going to have to consider. Then two is the all-or-nothing approach that the stakeholders have taken in federal legislation. And we're going to talk about that in the context of these labor issues and the hearings that were conducted in 2020 and the things that the NCAA and Power Five were asking for to essentially shut down the athletes' rights movement. And then you have uh, activity at the federal agency level that is a little more potent right now. I think you see a clear shift in momentum at the executive branch level, agency level, to the labor issues and whether athletes can achieve the status of statutory employees for purposes of federal law under the National Labor Relations Act or the Fair Labor Standards Act. And then, of course, you have the role of the states, and they regulate in many of the same areas that the federal government can regulate. And that, of course, expressed itself in these state name, image, and likeness laws. And then, of course, you have the new external market threats. So in that very first episode, when I was talking about the external threats to the powerful in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the NCAA, the Power Five, and all their corporate interests, I identified markets as perhaps the most potent and efficient external regulatory threat. And I think you're seeing that play out right now with this uh, new name, image, and likeness market and the transfer market and what some in-system stakeholder beneficiaries see as the synergy effect of those two market forces on the uh, overall business of big time college sports. And I'm going to do separate episodes on all of those external regulatory threats, all the market conditions that exist right now. As I look at what this transformation committee might be doing, because you can rest assured that Greg Sankey, who's the co-chair of that committee, and the people on that committee who are largely made up of Power Five interests, Power Five interests have a majority control of that committee, you can rest assured that their lawyers are at the table helping them navigate what the voluntary regulatory market ought to look like and how it should respond to these external regulatory threats. And so I'm going to be looking at these issues through the lens of this transformation committee and along the timeline that they have set forth. And one of the things that I found really fascinating through the course of this debate over athletes' rights from 2019 to the present and all the twists and turns that that debate has taken is that despite the kind of evolution in the pathways that might be available for athletes to try to force the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries to, to acknowledge their rights and their interests, those pathways are really defined by the same template. And there hasn't been a lot of original thinking within the boundaries of the these two sets of interests. And I, I think that just speaks to the power of the in-system stakeholder beneficiary's ability to set the narrative. And they have done that using all the levers of power available to them. And they are formidable. And I've talked quite a bit about that. But th this debate uh, has been so polarized in part because the starting point for the institutional stakeholders has been over my dead body. And then the athletes have been forced to respond with an equal and opposite approach through pathways that use external regulatory threats like courts and state legislatures and now federal agencies. And I think that binary approach to the marketplace of big time college sports and the regulation of college sports and the relationship between the institutions and the athletes has been reinforced in the public consciousness through circular amplification and repetition through very powerful megaphones that are available to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the NCAA, the Power Five, and all their broadcast media partners and the entertainment entertainment, sports industrial complex. And the acceptable way 
of talking about these issues runs primarily through institutional interest. And that's true with the sports media. It's true with these witnesses who testify for the NCAA and the Power Five. It's true for university presidents and chancellors. It's true for university spokespeople. It's true for the sports law experts who have been opining throughout the perfect storm. And in my judgment, they're landing a lot closer to the institutional interest than the athletes' interests. And it's true for these external advocacy groups like the Knight Commission and the Drake Group. Their starting point is the protection of institutional interest. And the combination of those voices and the box that they have put themselves in in thinking about alternatives to this status quo business model and regulatory model has really been a disservice. And there's only you can only talk about these issues on the terms and with the vocabulary and the narratives that they develop. And one of the reasons that I started my blog and this podcast was to just uh, jump into the fray a little bit here and speak about these issues in a much different way. I've been provocative and I, I haven't uh, held back on my true feelings about the, the business model and the motivations of the people that are benefiting from it. But that doesn't mean that I think that there should be outright war between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and the athlete interests. Both sides have important interests to protect, but given the way that these issues have been framed and the way that they have really been propagandized for decades now, it's very difficult to break out of that mold. And as, as I'm analyzing the work of this transformation committee and all these big issues that I've identified in this episode, I am looking at this with a, a goal in mind. And that goal is based on cooperation, negotiation. And we have a template for this in professional sports. And when you say that, when you say, oh, yeah, well, let's just use the collective bargaining approach that exists for the NFL and the NBA the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries go ballistic because then you are challenging the lie that they've been telling since the 1950s. And that is that this that football and men's basketball are amateur products. And as long as they are invested in that public lie to hide the private institutional truth and the business truth, then it's going to be di very difficult for things to change. And on the athlete side, there has to be an acknowledgement that the institutions have legitimate interests in limiting some of the rights of the people who are affiliated with their institution. It happens institution-wide. Those interests are legitimate. The way that I conceptualize this, this problem, it is a massive problem, is that both sides have a toolkit, but there's, there's only one tool in that toolkit, and it is a sledgehammer. So the institutional interests come out with their sledgehammer, and it's a big sledgehammer. It's a lot bigger than the athlete's sledgehammer, I have to say that. But they come in, and they just want to tear down any progress that's been made to acknowledge the true value of the revenue-producing athletes to the overall business model and the institutional interests. And then the athletes come back and respond with their sledgehammer that tries to tear down these amateurism-based compensation limits and the anti-competitive practices of the institutions. And my hope is that we can get to a place where those toolkits have more than sledgehammers. We need some saws. We need some measuring tapes. We need some levels. And we need some chisels. And those don't exist right now. And they can't exist in this binary way that the two primary stakeholder groups think about their interests and have pursued their interests. And in that regard, I just want to talk a minute about my opening montage. You heard a bunch of clips. And I'm going to identify the people who were speaking there. And listening to this rhetoric and the consistency of the rhetoric, you would think that these quotes came from the 1960s because they are regressive and they acknowledge only one possibility in terms of the relationship between the institutions and the athletes. But in fact, these quotes didn't come from the 1960s. They came from 2020 and they occurred during four hearings in the United States Senate that were conducted ostensibly on name, image, and likeness. But the true purpose of those hearings was to provide the NCAA and the Power Five absolute federal protections and immunities that would have eliminated all external regulatory threats to the college sports regulatory market and the financial market. They wanted the absolute preemption of state laws to take states completely out of the regulatory field with, with respect to any college sports 
sports regulation that went to preserving the compensation limits and eligibility rules. They wanted absolute antitrust immunity to completely eliminate federal courts from the regulatory field. And then they wanted a declaration that athletes could not be deemed employees to prevent athletes from having the, the rights that any other employee would have under federal law as statutory employees. They didn't want athletes unionizing and the institutions didn't want to bear the responsibility of an employer-employee relationship. That was the purpose of their engagement in Congress in 2020. And these quotes come from some of the most powerful people and decision makers in college sports, in higher education, and in American politics. So I just want to go through these quotes quickly, and they all go to the same point. So we're, they are almost identical. And, and that's one of the uh, observations I want to make, that the consistency in the messaging here is, is striking. And that consistency is far more powerful than the disorganized message that comes from the athletes' rights interests. And back right after the Austin decision on June 21st of uh, 2021, I did an episode, I believe it was episode 30, that was titled, An Organized Lie is More Powerful Than a Disorganized Truth. And as I go through these quotes, I want to keep that theme in mind because the, the lies that the NCAA, the Power Five, and all their in-system stakeholder beneficiary minions have been putting into the public consciousness for decades are among the most well-coordinated, organized, and manipulated lies in modern American history. And they run through a collection of some of the most powerful institutions in American history history, public and private. So I'm going to do this in the order in which the quotes appear, even though this is not in chronological order according to the, the Senate hearings. But the first one was from Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner. He said, as we implement these name, image, and likeness changes, our student athletes must remain students and not become employees of colleges and universities. So this is the uh, commissioner of the SEC, who is now the uh, de facto czar of college sports regulation as the co-chair of this transformation committee. And he, as I've said in prior episodes, is probably the most powerful person in college sports right now. This is not an athlete-friendly statement. None of his testimony at that hearing was athlete-friendly. And that hearing was uh, in Senate Commerce on July 1st. It was the second hearing in Commerce of 2020. And Sankey was there with all the talking points that, and there's not a wit's difference between what Greg Sankey said and what the NCAA was saying through Mark Emmert and the, the chair of the Board of Governors, Michael Drake. Then the next quote is from Rebecca Blank, the chancellor at Wisconsin-Madison. I think she may be going to Northwestern now. This was at the September 15th, 2020 hearing in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by Lamar Alexander, a Republican from Tennessee. And Blank is not just some university chancellor at the time, and she was cagey in, in describing her, her role with the NCAA, the same way that Linda Livingstone was, the president of Baylor, in that uh, September 30th, 2021 hearing. But Blank says this, and last, and she's listing a list of things that uh, have to be in place as a precondition to any name, image, and likeness opportunities. She said, and last, student athletes are not university employees. Their first priority is to be students working towards a college degree. The next clip from Anthony Gonzalez. He was the very first witness to testify at the very first Senate hearing on February 11th, 2020. And he was a uh, sitting uh, member of the House of Representatives, Republican from Ohio. And he's not going to run for re-election, but he was a golden boy on uh, federal legislation. And he put out a piece of legislation through the House that I, I've talked quite a bit about. But here's what Gonzalez said. And this, again, he's supposed to be an athlete-friendly witness. He presented himself at that hearing as... Yeah, uh, name, image, and likeness rights. And I've been an athlete advocate since I was a student athlete, and this is important to me. But then when he gets to what he really wants in a federal bill, it is right down the line. NCAA, Power Five, every talking point, every federal protection and immunity, and every limitation on athletes' abilities to make money from their name, image, 
enlightenment. Because Gonzalez says this, any legislation must also guarantee that student athletes are s- still considered students, not employees of an institution. Using nil to create an employment framework would destroy college sports as we know it. So there's Gonzalez. Yeah, this will be the death of college sports. They will come to a fatal collapse, which we now know. Uh, we have absolute proof that did not occur because the games go on. The games go on. And uh, so that was in commerce. I think I mentioned that. Then we also had at the very same hearing, February 11th, 2020, Bob Bowlesby, the Big 12 commissioner. That's pretty powerful. So already in these quotes, we've got two Power Five conference commissioners. And Bowlesby says very succinctly, college sports is not a vocation and the participants are not employees. Then again, at the very same hearing, you had NCAA President Mark Emmert on February 11th, 2020, in this subcommittee of commerce saying, without proper guardrails and structure, some nil proposals threaten to undermine the core values of college sports by allowing payments for nil to serve as pay for play and potentially turning college athletes into employees. So most of these quotes have come from the very first hearing. And as I have discussed in other episodes, that first hearing was designed to just get the NCAA and Power Five's foot in the door with the Senate. They had been lobbying behind the scenes for almost a year before they actually had the first hearing in February of 2020. So they had a running head start. They're running it through Republican-friendly senators. And the actual chair of the Commerce Committee at the time was Roger Wicker. So you have Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas, who was the chair of this Commerce Subcommittee. He put out a bill in February of 2021 Uh, Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi, who's the chair of the full committee, he sat in on that hearing and he put out a bill himself in December of 2020. And uh, I'm going to talk about both of those bills in detail. I'm going to just talk briefly about the Moran bill in this episode. But these are heavy hitters. And the message was coordinated. The purpose of that first hearing was to get Senate buy-in to the NCAA's plea for help. They were essentially begging for a federal bailout because they simply can't self-regulate and control their own instincts when it comes to keeping their house in order at the regulatory level and then at the business level. So then we go to Dan Radakovich, and he was then the athletics director at Clemson. He's now the AD at Miami, I think. This was from a different hearing. This was a July 22nd, 2020 hearing in the Judiciary Committee. And Radakovich says, First and most importantly, we must recognize that we're dealing with students who are and should remain students and not employees. We cannot allow college athletics to devolve into a pay-for-play system that exists only as a training ground for a handful of future professionals and infringes on the integrity of the recruitment process. Then we, I have Rebecca Blank again from that same hearing, September 15th in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. This is 2020 as well. She says the main benefit these students take away is their educational degree. It's not about coming here, earning money and to be an employee. And then the last quote, and this is really, I think, the the most powerful quote because it comes from Lamar Alexander, the chair of that Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, Republican from Tennessee. And Alexander has experience in academia. He was president of Vanderbilt University, and he's been in the Senate for a long, long time. He recently retired. And he also served on the initial Knight Commission. And so he he invoked the Knight Commission in his rambling opening statement. And and when I get to breaking down that hearing, I'm going to go through that opening monologue that he had. He was openly hostile to athletes having anything more than they had under the old status quo, including name, image, and likeness, quote-unquote, compensation. But here's what Alexander says. When you listen to him, it really feels like you're listening to a politician from the 1950s or 1960s. And he says, if you elect to be a student-athlete, your earnings should benefit all student-athletes at your institutions. If you want to keep the money and be someone's employees, then go join a professional team. And there are a couple of points I want to make about these quotes. First of all, these are all extraordinarily powerful people. Second, the message from these powerful stakeholders is very well coordinated and very disciplined. They stay within the talking points. And that comes through in in every aspect of their interaction with Congress. When you read the written statements that these people provided, and then you listen to their testimony, I mean, they are 
on point, they are on task, and they do not deviate. And the same was true for these Republican senators. They were all reading from the same page, the same script, and it was choreographed by in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and their high-priced lawyers and lobbyists. And this was a coordinated attack on the athletes' rights movement. And there were, let's see, four hearings in 2020, and they occurred in three different committees. You have to ask yourself, well, why those three committees? And that's a great question, and it is an unanswered question because none of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries or anybody covering college sports bothers to think about it this way or, or to really focus on what the ask is here. And it is a massive, massive ask by the Power Five and the NCAA. But you're in commerce. Why are you in commerce? Because commerce has frontline original jurisdiction over sports-related issues, and any legislation that comes out that regulates college sports or the interests of the market participants, it's going to come out of commerce. So that makes the chair of the Commerce Committee extraordinarily powerful. That was Roger Wicker in 2020. It is now Maria Cantwell, and I've talked about her as well. And then the other part of commerce's jurisdiction, which is crucial to the NCAA Power Five's campaign to eliminate the athletes' rights movement, is that commerce would be the committee through which any preemption provision would run. They have the jurisdiction over commerce. This preemption provision would regulate commerce in a different way and basically prevent any competition among the states in interstate commerce. It would basically take the states out of the regulatory market. But that is really a commerce-related issue. So this preemption provision, which was so important to the NCAA and the Power Five, that runs through commerce. And that's why the hearing in June of 2021, just before these state nil laws went into effect, was held in the Commerce Committee. Then you had a hearing in the Judiciary Committee. Why are we having a hearing on uh, name, image, and likeness, because all these hearings were ostensibly on name, image, and likeness, but that's really not what they were about. They were about protecting the interests of the big-time, powerful, in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. But why are we in judiciary? The truth of the matter is, even though this didn't come up directly and nobody spoke honestly about what the NCAA was truly asking for here in terms of absolute antitrust immunity, the only reason that the Judiciary Committee has jurisdiction is because it has frontline responsibility for antitrust issues. And if you're going to get a bill like the Moran bill or the Wicker bill, which have very broad antitrust immunity provisions, you have to get the blessing of the Judiciary Committee. You have to have hearings there and you have to be able to say that they are A-OK with having an antitrust immunity in a piece of federal legislation. And just to show you the, the duplicity of the NCAA and Power Five, while they are sitting in the Judiciary Committee, who only has jurisdiction because of the NCAA Power Five's request for antitrust immunity, they are saying publicly, and they are saying to the Ninth Circuit in Austin and to the U.S. Supreme Court in Austin that they are not seeking antitrust immunity. They outright deny that. In the June Ninth hearing, the, the last gasp for preemption before these state nil laws went into effect, Mark Emmert said to the United States Senate under oath that he didn't know anybody that was seeking antitrust immunity, that this wasn't about antitrust immunity. It, it was just shocking. And he got away with it. He got away with it. So now let's go to the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Why are they involved? Well, let me just give you a little hint here. It wasn't about health. It wasn't about education. And it wasn't about pensions. It was about labor. Why is labor relevant? Because one of the three components of the NCAA Power Five's war on revenue producing athletes was a provision under federal law that athletes can't be deemed employees. They were very coy about uh, talking about that issue and they didn't go into detail about how that would occur. But it would likely occur through the HELP Committee, who has jurisdiction over labor issues and would have the authority to recommend changes to the National Labor Relations Act or the Federal Labor Standards Act that would put in prohibitions on athletes being deemed employees. So if you can get the HELP Committee in the Senate to buy into a bill 
that specifically excludes athletes, college athletes, as statutory employees under federal law, then there is no pathway for athletes to be recognized uh, as employees. And then it's game, set, match for these athletes. And the other thing that's important to understand in the context of the, this argument that athletes can't be employees is that that issue has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. The name, image, and likeness marketplace, by its very definition, exists only between the athletes and third parties who have nothing to do with the university. The university is not a market participant in the name, image, and likeness market. So why the hell is the NCAA and the Power Five coming in and demanding a federal declaration that athletes can't be deemed employees? And the dishonesty of that ask in the NCAA Power Five campaign in the Senate didn't get exposed until June of 2021 in this last-ditch hearing, this June 9th hearing, when Hawaii Senator, Democrat Senator Brian Schatz directly posed that question to Mark Emmert. And he hemmed and hawed, and then shots went to a law professor who was testifying, and the law professor, who I think was testifying largely on terms that were friendly to the NCAA Power 5 interests, he said, it has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness, and that the NCAA Power 5's request for that was a massive, massive ask. And uh, I also want to just take a second here to put these hearings in context, in the hearings from 2020. The February hearing occurred three weeks before the beginning of one of the worst crises in the history of the United States of America. And by mid-March, the entire country was on complete lockdown. Every branch of the federal government, every branch of the state governments were fully focused, solely focused on dealing with the consequences of the pandemic, not just from a public health standpoint, but from an economic standpoint. And our uh, country ha had never encountered anything like this. Yet, what did the NCAA and the Power Five do in response? What did the NCAA Power Five friendly Republicans in the United States Senate do? Did they say, wait a minute, we don't need to be talking about college sports right now. The United States Senate cannot afford to divert precious resources to an issue that is comparatively inconsequential. But that's not what happened. Instead, the United States Senate granted the NCAA and Power Five three additional hearings to lay the foundation for their attempt to end the athletes' rights movement. And the last thing I want to point out about these quotes is that they are absolute statements. These are totalitarian statements. There is absolutely no room for any discussion about these issues. This is the North Korea approach to college sports regulation. And it's powerful because it's coordinated and it's coming from some very powerful people in college sports and in higher education and in American politics. That's a pretty, pretty strong group right there. And when you're dealing with that mindset, there's no room for discussion. There's no room for negotiation. There's no room for debate. And one of the ultimate ironies in the way that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have pressed their campaign to eliminate the athletes' rights movement is that this is occurring under the umbrella of higher education. We're supposed to have a free and open debate. We're supposed to use facts, not speculation. We're, we want to look to evidence, not opinion. We want to look at these issues from all vantage points and then come to a resolution that makes sense, that is sensible. And what the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are saying in these comments is not sensible. It's not reasonable. It is not open for discussion. And that's part of the problem because that narrative, that power, that side of the binary equation in thinking about the regulation of college sports is so deeply ensconced into the public consciousness that it's really, really hard to try to pull these people out of it, 
I think it's so important to look at who is making these decisions. And we have the same people, the same mindset, the same in-system stakeholder beneficiary voices in this transformation committee who were spouting the party line in 2020. So they may change the vocabulary, they may change the messaging, but have they changed their values? Have they changed their thinking? Have they changed their opinions? I don't think so. I don't think so. You can't go from totalitarian to meet me in the middle uh, reasonableness in one year. And I think it's very important to keep that in mind as we look at what is going to be coming out from in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and principally from Greg Sankey and this transformation committee. They may change their dance moves a little bit, but they're dancing to the same song with the same partner. And I think when you look at this through the lens of the athlete's interests on the other side of this binary framework, I think it's pretty easy to understand why they have perceived themselves as really having to use whatever sledgehammers are in their toolkit because you can't bring a chisel to a debate with the NCAA and the Power Five and try to work on nuance. This isn't a nuanced discussion. It's all or nothing. And I think that leads to a lack of trust. You know, when the NCAA and all these athletes' rights issues has said, trust us, trust us, trust us on voluntary rules making and on the climate and culture and value system of the institution. A gender equity is a good example. Trust us, trust us, we're going to do the right thing. And they never do the right thing on gender equity. They've, they never put the athlete's interests first. It's the institutional interest, the financial interest, the reputational interest. And then if there is some coincidental convergence of interest with the athletes, then maybe they uh, get something they didn't have before. This is not an open debate. It is not a debate that is based in trust. And I'm going to talk about that trust dynamic because I believe that really the only intelligent way out for this uh, dysfunctional college sports world is through some kind of negotiated understanding of the interest and, and, and some agreement on how the business ought to operate going forward. But that requires trust. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges going forward is the lack of trust between these two groups of stakeholders. So let me talk about these labor issues. And they have really come on the scene in late 2021 and early 2022. There's a, actually a, a lawsuit that was started before that, but all these things are coming together right now. And I think they're going to dominate the discussion going forward in, in 2022 because this employee, no employee thing really ties into so many other of the moving parts at the regulatory level. But I think there's a really important caveat to analyzing these labor issues now. And that is that when you look at the history of the the debate between the in-system stakeholders and then the athletes that's been going on for decades now, the labor issues are the least developed issues. We have had amateurism being analyzed in federal litigation for what, I don't know, for several decades and in the context of athletes' rights since 2006. But the employee issue is really not one that's been under the microscope in any meaningful way. And I just want to say, I probably should have said this at the very beginning of the episode, but I'm going to be talking in more detail about these labor issues. And my thoughts on that aren't fully developed, in part because there hasn't been a lot of discussion uh, about these issues at the broader regulatory level and the impact to the stakeholders of athletes being recognized as employees. But these are very complicated issues that involve many moving parts and different areas of, of jurisdiction among regulators and, and decision makers. And I'm going to take myself back to law school. I did that when I reconnected with the, the athletes' rights issues and started writing about three years ago. I actually started researching about four years ago. And I bought uh, a few sports law books and a couple of antitrust law books. But the labor issues really weren't front and center. And so I'm, I'm going to go through that process before I speak in any detail about how I think about these issues. And then hopefully at some point, I'm going to transition the podcast into an interview component and hope to get some people uh, on the podcast to, to talk about these issues, people who do it every day. These are, again, highly specialized areas of law and regulation. But you've had discussions about this in fits and starts and in very specific contexts, like the 
2014 Northwestern unionization attempt. And you had some discussion about what the next step would be if the athletes had uh, been successful and the National Labor Relations Board had affirmed the findings of the regional board that these athletes were indeed employees. If that had occurred, I think we would have started to have a discussion about collective bargaining and all these things. But that was a very isolated situation. It was one school, uh, one sport, and another very important limitation of that Northwestern case is that the National Labor Relations Act and, and the National Labor Relations Board only deal with private actors, and Northwestern is a private university. And when you look at the Power Five landscape, you have six, 65 schools, I think 53 are public. So that decision would have applied only to the private universities and then would put those interests theoretically in conflict with the public institutions. And these labor issues with respect to public institutions are governed largely by state laws. And that's one of the important issues in what's happening right now in these initiatives, particularly through the federal agency pathway. The athlete-friendly legislation I'm going to talk about here in a minute tries to solve that issue. It's just an example of how complex these issues are. We have these attempts to get declarations that these athletes are employees, and that's great, but then what? What is, what's the after scenario there, and how does it come together? Who's going to drive the decision-making? And if it comes down to collective bargaining, is there really equal bargaining? power here? And have these issues been really thought through in a way that doesn't automatically default to deference to the institutional interests? And I think that's in large part because of the success the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have had through this conceptualization of the student-athlete and this clear line that athletes can't be employees, no pay for play. They can't uh, get any money directly from the university beyond their scholarship, which I think is pay for play. But th that is a very hard line that really hasn't been breached. And there hasn't been much discussion about it, but with that fairly substantial caveat in mind, I want to talk just a little bit about what I see as the boundaries of this debate over employee versus no employee. And I think that expresses itself pretty clearly in two pieces of legislation, one on the NCAA Power 5 and system stakeholder beneficiary side, and then another on the athlete-friendly side. And I'm going to start with Jerry Moran's bill. And Moran is the Republican senator from Kansas. And then compare it to a bill that came out in May of 2021 through uh, Senators Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, and Bernie Sanders, who's technically uh, independent from Vermont but uh, he's more on the Democrat side. And this Moran bill came out in February of 2021. It is titled the Amateur Athletes Protection and Compensation Act of 2021. And this is really on the back end of the evolution of the Republican bills. The first one was Marco Rubio in June. And then you had NCAA Power Five bills in July. Then you had a Wicker bill in December. Then you had this Moran bill. They all are NCAA-friendly bills that would essentially eliminate the athletes' rights movement. But Section 5 of this Moran bill is titled Employment Matters. And it says this, Notwithstanding any other provision of federal or state law, an amateur intercollegiate athlete shall not be considered an employee of an institution of high higher education, a conference, or a national amateur athletic association based on the amateur intercollegiate athletes' participation in amateur intercollegiate athletic events or amateur intercollegiate athletic competition. So that's pretty pretty broad statement right there. There Now, it doesn't talk about how that would be achieved through actual legislative language, but uh, I mean, that is a blunt force instrument to prevent athletes from being deemed employees. This is the sledgehammer. There's only one tool that Moran needs here to achieve that, that goal. And that totalitarian mandate is reinforced by the preemption provision in the Moran bill. And we're going to take a quick look at this. And that says, this is the very last provision in the bill. It's, it's longer than most of these other bills that, that have come out in, in Congress in 2020 and 2021. But it's stuck here at the very end. So it's Section 13 preemption. No state or political subdivision of a state may establish or continue in effect any law or regulation that governs or regulates the compensation, intellectual property rights, 
endorsement contracts, employment status, or eligibility for an amateur intercollegiate athletic competition or any amateur intercollegiate athlete, including any provision that governs or regulates the commercial use of the name, image, or likeness of an amateur intercollegiate athlete. Boy, there's so much there that I'll I'll try to hit the high points. And and I'm going to talk about these bills in more detail in other episodes. But this is just the perfect proof of the grand bait and switch on name, image, and likeness. This entire congressional campaign is supposed to be based on securing name, image, and likeness compensation for these athletes. This provision does not do that. This provision basically takes states completely out of the regulatory field, and it includes the employment status. So they throw that into these preemption provisions. Nobody talks about that or its relationship to the other more broad provisions that basically come out right and say that athletes can't be employed. So this preemption provision relates to any form of compensation, to any eligibility rule, to the employment status, to anything, including name, image, and likeness. So this is just a complete takedown of any state laws that relate in any way to the way that the NCAA and Power Five see the world, including the employment status of athletes. So this would theoretically take off the table any state-based labor laws and perhaps any state workers' compensation laws. The, The breadth of this provision, this preemption provision, is just it's breathtaking and fundamentally at odds with the way that the NCAA and the Power Five have represented their intentions and their motives with respect to name, image, and likeness legislation. And the NCAA Power Five duplicity on preemption hasn't gotten a word of coverage in the mainstream media, either the sports media or the the other regular mainstream media. And why is that? But this is the sledgehammer, blunt force, totalitarian option on labor issues from the perspective of the NCAA and the Power Five. Now, let's go on the flip side of that coin or the the other end of the spectrum. And let's talk a little bit about this Murphy-Sanders bill. This is really the slam dunk option for the recognition of athletes as statutory employees. And the way that it's structured, it solves many of the uh, uncertainties and the potential legal hurdles to employee status that exist under uh, federal labor law. And the name of this law is the College Athlete Right to Organize Act. And again, it was introduced by Murphy and Sanders. And there's a House companion bill as well. When this bill came out, it was roundly criticized by the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. But uh, I think it has more legs now, given the way that the labor issues have changed since the fall of 2021. And and that was driven in part by the uh, general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board coming out with an advisory memo, a policy memo, saying that athletes have been misclassified as students and and that they're actually employees. And that led to some other agency action. And I'm going to talk about Uh, those agency issues in another episode as I'm looking at all the external regulatory threats that are on the table now. But the central component of this Murphy-Sanders bill is that the National Labor Relations Act would be amended to define any college athlete as an employee of their college if they receive compensation from their college in, in whatever form. And that is a categorical, absolute statement. And it is the equal opposite of the Moran bill, which says categorically, athletes cannot be deemed employees, whether it's under state law or federal law or uh, through any agency action. So the Murphy-Sanders bill then goes on to, to amend the National Labor Relations Act to define public colleges alongside private institutions as employers within the context of intercollegiate sports. And that solves this issue that was uh, raised in Northwestern and the fact that the NLRA has uh, traditionally applied only to uh, private entities. And this would basically solve that tension between public-private institutions by defining public colleges as being employers with respect to athletes. And then this bill would allow multi-employer bargaining units for college athletes and basically 
making a pathway for collective bargaining. And then the Murphy-Sanders bill would give the National Labor Relations Board jurisdiction over all of the rights that, that the athletes would have as uh, statutory employees under federal law, including collective bargaining and representation issues. And then there's a provision that says that the athletes cannot be forced by their institutions or conferences or the NCAA to waive their labor rights under this bill. And then the last thing, and this is one of the things that's come up as well, you want to be employees, then you're going to have to pay taxes. That was uh, Richard Burr's argument at the uh, September 15th, 2020 hearings in health, education, labor, and pensions. He's a Republican from North Carolina. And he was going after uh, Ramoji Huma, who's head of the National College Players Association, who was involved in that Northwestern case in 2014. And he's saying, well, you guys are union guys. You want to be employees, fine, but you're going to have to pay taxes and, and all this stuff. He made some public comments uh, to that effect as well. But this provision under the Murphy-Sanders bill would basically preserve the current sta uh, tax status of the athletes' scholarships and, and the other benefits that, that go along with it. And that wouldn't change. And uh, it would not affect their eligibility for financial aid. That's, a, that's an interesting provision because that then dovetails with some other federal laws relating to financial aid and all that. This law would require multi-disciplinary, uh, multi-agency, multi-committee cooperation because there are so many moving parts. But the, the reason that I wanted to talk about this employee, no employee issue in this categorical way with these bookends that, that define the ends of the spectrum is that that's really reflective of the thinking of the stakeholders on both sides of this issue and the distrust that exists uh, between those two groups. And on the NCAA Power Five side, they're saying, up yours. We want to just make it impossible for you to drag us to a table where we have to sit down and negotiate with you. And then on the flip side of that, the athletes are saying, we are going to drag you kicking and screaming. We're going to force you to the bargaining table. And that is not a healthy environment for anybody. And it has, I think, engendered this gridlock that exists in the current Congress that may change with a new Congress. And everybody's saying, oh, well, Congress isn't going to do anything. And yeah, that's true. And there's been historical reluctance on Congress's part to get involved. I think that is uh, not as true now as it was in the past, in large part because the NCAA and Power Five have been working Congress for two and a half years now and have made substantial inroads. And with a Republican-controlled Senate, and these, the growing suggestion among the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries that the sky is falling, I think you could see a piece of federal legislation. And who knows what that's going to look like? I think it may be built around preemption. But as these labor issues evolve in 2022, and we're looking towards the midterm elections, I think you're going to see the, the Power Five and the NCAA really starting to double down on that. And another important dynamic here in that regard is, is timing. So you, you have all these more middle pathway options that aren't a slam dunk resolution of these issues. You have one in federal court right now, the Johnson case that's in the Third Circuit under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And the sole issue that's been presented to the Third Circuit is whether athletes can be employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And then you have these agency pathways right now through the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board challenging the NCAA and Power Five's classification of these athletes as non-employees. And so you, you have all this uncertainty that is brewing in, in the middle of these two extremes that doesn't resolve some of the issues that ultimately need to be resolved. And I think that uncertainty and fear would have the, the tendency to pull the decision makers towards one of the two extremes that provides certainty. And so one of the things I'm going to be paying attention to is the timing of all, of all these regulatory pathways and how they align with the work of this transformation committee and then the Power Five's re-engagement with Congress after the midterms and, and how those turn out. But this all brings me to, to one final and I think overarching point, and that is the absence of trust, the absence of cooperation, the absence of seeing both sides of the argument in these two groups of stakeholders, and the momentum, the powerful momentum 
to operating in the extremes, rather in the middle. And there is nothing, nothing stopping the universities, the conferences, the decision makers at the NCAA from recognizing these athletes as employees. They could do that tomorrow. And who knows, that may be something they're considering, but if they're doing it under the cover of darkness, it means that they will only consider that option if they think they can use it as a power play to steamroll the athletes in any quote-unquote collective bargaining. But if they're operating in good faith, they could say tomorrow, look, we see this issue coming down the pike. It seems unavoidable. And we want to come clean on the fact that we are operating essentially professional sports products in football and men's basketball. And now we want to negotiate a, a relationship with these athletes that makes both parties as happy as they can possibly be. Will it be easy? No. Will there be conflicts? Yes. But that's existed in the professional market since the 1960s. And one of the differences here is that the professional labor issues, NFL, NBA, those have had 70 years of development. And you have some of the, the issues that seemed intractable and impossible getting worked out. And I think the same thing could happen in college sports, but only if the stakeholders are, are willing to sit down at that table. And this is really directed mostly at the NCAA and Power Five because they have been so militant and totalitarian in their opposition to that option that they're going to have to show and prove and try to bridge the trust issue and say, look, we're, we're doing this in good faith. We understand that this has to happen and we've been wrong. We've just been wrong. And now it's time to change, and we're going to do it in an open, transparent way. Is that going to happen? Again, when you have the same people making the decisions now that created this problem in the first place and then went to the United States Congress in 2019 and tried to pull off one of the most audacious regulatory power grabs in the history of American sports that would have ended the athletes' rights movement, you have to wonder if they're capable of doing that. And that's why I see things sitting right now. But we're going to be analyzing these labor issues with that possibility in mind. And again, this will be informed by what's happening through this transformation committee and the willingness of the Power Five stakeholders now to come to an honest relationship with their professionalized business model. So uh, with that, I'm going to close this episode out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 